Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to John Lawyer. He was a counterintelligence special agent when he was in the army, so he's got various military background that he will be sharing about today, and he has transformed to a spiritual seeker, so he'll also talk about some spiritual background of what he's got going on and kind of the different changes he's had in his life. So I'm grateful to have John here today. Thank you so much, John. Why don't you go ahead and tell the audience more about yourself? Yeah, Sarah, thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. And I I love the idea of increasing our worldview. I think that's such an important thing in today's world. And uh, as far as me, I, I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma, and I knew that college wasn't for me. So I just joined the army straight out of high school. It would have been about a year before 9-11 happened. And then by the time I got done with my training and all of that, I got to my permanent duty station about six months before 9-11. And then uh, obviously 9-11 happened and we were at war. And so (laughs) I spent the next 12 out of 15 years of my first, you know, part of my adult life uh, in Kuwait, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, on and off. And that was my life. I, like uh, you said, I was a counterintelligence special agent. Uh, I did counterterrorism and I really loved my job. I was, I was a believer. I was a kind of idealistic youth and believed in what we were doing. And, uh, I was very passionate about succeeding and, and trying to be the best and kind of threw myself into that. And it's kind of one of those situations where we were at war. So it was easy to get deep into it and to just keep doing that. And I got to a point where I, I had the option of coming home after I got out of the army and I decided just to be a civilian and do the same thing. And I still could have come home, but it was kind of a choice between going to Washington DC and living in the beltway and working in a cubicle or, you know, fighting traffic twice a day on the, you know, on the, on the highway or just, staying overseas and, and doing something that was kind of exciting and that I like doing. And so it's all I knew. So that's what I did. And, uh, my, interestingly, my wife had a very similar job to me and, and we actually did this together. So we were actually always together during most of these deployments and, and time overseas. So, uh, that's kind of how it started out and, and, and where I kind of got my, uh, I, 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 it was all, it was my whole life experience was like 110 hours a week, seven days a week, just, you know, doing this job. And it's one of those situations where you're, you're kind of in, you're kind of in it. You don't realize that you're in it. Like you're in this pot of boiling water and you're like, I don't realize I'm in a pot of boiling water. So that was kind of my experience to start out with as, as, as a youth. So it was a natural path for you to, not go to college, just kind of join the military and then world happenstances made it, you know, very, very like remote and, you know, kind of going through everything. So, but you also just mentioned that, you know, you were with your wife during a deployment all of that time. So what was it like balancing a marriage and 
a high stress, high busy job of being active military. I think it, you know, it was, that's an interesting thing to think about. It was, it was easy and it was hard. I think it was both those things because I think it was easy because we understood what each other did. So from some, from some perspectives, we watched our friends have significant others that were back in the States and they would have problems because they were separated. So we were together. So that was good. Uh, but you know, we worked in the same, usually in the same section. So we were almost always working we were together 24 hours a day, seven days a week, pretty much. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it caused problems sometimes because you, I think you're in this boiling pot of water kind of, there's this low gauge trauma that you're going through that you don't realize. And there's all this stuff happening and it's high pressure. And I mean, most of our job was work. So we were, it's not like we were going to the movies or, uh, stuff like that. So it was a definitely a unique experience, I think. Uh, it, but it brought us very close together. We kind of almost share a brain. You know, I, you probably experienced this too in your, in your line of work, whatever, or, or other people's lines of work. When you're at work and you need someone to do something to help you, a lot of times there's no one you can ask. You don't feel confident that's going to get done necessarily. Or, you know, but when you have this like absolute faith in someone that is, is good at what they do and you know them, you know, completely all the way through, then it, it becomes easy to share work. I think from that perspective, that was very unique, you know. Yeah. So, you know, constant contact, constantly being with each other. So what were your, you don't necessarily need to go into kind of like her specific role, but what was your specific role? Like what did, if you want to pick a point in your career or kind of talk about all of it, what was your like day to day? Like, like what does counterintelligence counterterrorism really mean for the average person who might not know what it's sure. like being active military? Yeah, I, I did, I did counterintelligence is pretty wide, but I can, I did, and I did most aspects of it over the years I started out doing, it was strategic. So it was kind of like spy versus spy, like foreign countries would try to spy on us. We would try to stop it. So take Russia or Iran or someone like that. I was in Kuwait during the early part of my career. And so there was a specific foreign, foreign country that I was responsible for trying to stop them from spying on us and western forces in kuwait and you know that it was at a uh you know you try to identify who is spying on you you try to neutralize that or you can just identify it and say well okay now i know this person's spying on me so i'm going to use that to our advantage to pass them bad information or fake information or tell them whatever it is we wanted to tell them and i did that in kuwait i did that in iraq in baghdad as well and so there's a, uh, it's kind of a, I don't know, you, it's, it's a, it's not a game, but it, there's a gamesmanship to it. It's a chess thing. And, uh, and that also extended to a more kind of operational tactical level where you've got those foreign, same, some of those same foreign countries on the battlefield, like in Iraq, trying to do bad things to our soldiers, uh, through proxies or through whatever. So you're trying to prevent that from happening. You're trying to educate superiors what's happening. So you're trying to tell the generals, hey, here's what's happening. And you're trying to tell the ambassador, here's what ha here's what's happening. Here's why it's happening. And I said, say, well, how do you stop it? You know, and you're like, well, you could talk to them. 
And I'm like, that's a terrible idea. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, stuff like that. Um, so that was kind of the strategic side of it and a little bit of the operational. And then when I went to Afghanistan, I was there, I spent six and a half years consecutively in, Af- in Kandahar, Afghanistan. And that experience was much more uh, operational, lower level. Like our job was to protect Kandahar Airfield, which at the time was the busiest single runway on planet earth. Uh, and we had planes landing and taking off every 30 seconds and we're in a landlocked country. We've it's, it's like the our main artery. So, uh, our job was to protect 50,000 people there on the airfield, keep the planes going, keep people safe, probably in that order. And, uh, so our unit went out and collected intelligence to do that, put it together with other intelligence. And then we would, uh, go out and actually neutralize the threat, capture operation, drop a bomb, whatever it took to protect the the airfield. So uh, that was kind of my experience at the more like uh, like it's kind of immediate cause and effect kind of thing at that point. Mm-hmm. And so then these various countries that you were stationed in and being in Afghanistan for a number of years. Were you mostly just kind of like on a military base with your fellow service people, or were you also like experiencing the culture of the people who are native to those countries? Yeah, I, uh, both. I was on a military base in Kuwait. I lived on base uh, for part of the time. I also lived down like in Kuwait city on the economy, uh, I had, I worked at the embassy part-time and they, they would give housing to us. And so I got to live out amongst the Kuwaitis and the, and the third country nationals that lived there. And so that was an interesting experience actually being able to, I, I got to wear civilian clothes. And that's part of the thing about being counterintelligence. You, I usually got to dress in civilian clothes and, uh, all that kind of stuff. So that was a, a kind of a different experience as a soldier than a lot of people. And I got to go out in the desert and talk to people and, you know, our whole job is to get to know people, try to get them to, to, to tell us things, even friends, even talk to friendly countries and, and try to get them to give us information. Um, and so, yeah, I spent a lot of time uh, in Kuwait and in malls and hotels and uh, kind of shadier parts of the city and just trying to to do the thing. And in Baghdad, I I didn't get out as much. I got out some, but that was more just traveling uh, to and from places. Sometimes we would go meet Iraqis, uh, at like a ministry or, uh, um, a place. So I, I did get out, but in Iraq, it was much different. Uh, it was a much more hostile environment. Um, and so that was, that was kind of my experience there. And in Afghanistan, I spent, uh, the, the, the biggest part of my time was on, on Kandahar field on base most of the time because, uh, it was, it was, I, my guys would be out all the time that kind of, I was responsible for. And so I would be, you know, go collect this or, or, you know, go to that compound. And, you know, so it was a much, it is a kind of a, more of a managerial type thing. And so I'm guessing that that's very different than rural Oklahoma. So what was that kind of like first getting out of rural Oklahoma like for you with the difference of just you know what rural oklahoma is like 
yeah, I think growing up middle of nowhere, Oklahoma, it's, uh, I always wanted to see the world. I, I watched Lawrence of Arabia. I wanted to do that. You know, and this is where I tell the audience, you know, be careful what you wish for because you get it, you know? So then I got to go to the Middle East, you know, I got to, you know, I got to go to the Middle East and do that. Um, but I think growing up in Oklahoma, I knew I wanted to get out. I knew I wanted to leave. I knew I wanted to see the world. I knew I wanted, I wanted to make a difference and, and do something exciting. And, uh, but it was a, it was a big shock. I, I thank my parents though, because I think that they educated me well, they prepared me, they raised me. We, I was raised Southern Baptist, but because both sides of my family, both grandparents were big Southern Baptist, but my parents were pretty progressive liberal. So I, I was raised in Oklahoma, Southern Baptist, but also with progressive liberal values. I, after Sunday school, my parents at lunch would, would ask me what they taught me in Sunday school. And I'd be like, I don't want to talk about that. I, and I realized they were deprogramming me from the, the fundamentalist, uh, you know, whatever. But um, my parents prepared me to go out into the world ahead of time. I, I had a good vocabulary. I, I, I didn't have a, a huge accent, things like that. They prepared me to go be a part of the world. And I, I'm thankful for that. And so then returning to civilian life, are you still, you know, kind of wanting to see the world and, you know, continue that feeling of, you know, making a difference? Yeah. When I got out, I essentially just kept doing the same job. And so I, I, I would, and, I, and you know, I, they don't, people don't talk about this a lot, uh, but you get addicted to war, just like you get addicted to professional athletes or extreme sports or anybody that's completely and wholly dedicated to their craft, right? You get addicted to that. And um, Sebastian Younger, actually, he's a pretty high level journalist. journalist. He, he actually has a, a main level TED talk where he talks about the aspects of being addicted to war. And actually, I don't know if you've ever seen Whiskey Tango Foxtrot with Tina Fey, but that actually deals pretty well with uh, her being a journalist, being addicted to it. So I, I needed it. Like I needed the rush of like being in helicopters and hearing planes and, you know, oh, we've got to go get this guy right now. And, and like the excitement of it all. Um, so yeah, I, I just kept, I just had a need to keep doing it because that kind of my identity, you know? And so how have you been able to kind of keep having those feelings while being a civilian? Like how was your, how, how did you kind of maintain a, a similar job and lifestyle when returning to civilian? Well, that I just stayed overseas as a civilian. Now that I'm home, after I came home to the U.S., I needed to get away. I needed to stop doing that. Like I was burnt out. I mean, I think I lived a whole lifetime by the time I was like 35. So I, I needed to just uh, be out of it. And I was completely fried. I had PTSD and anxiety and uh, OCD and depression. I, I, the whole, I had this whole buffet of things that was wrong with me. Uh, and so I went, I went to the, so, I, and at that point I didn't really do much of anything except try to figure out how to heal. Um, so that was like coming back to North Texas is where I live with my wife. And we both kind of had to, cause then we had no identity. Like, you know, I used to walk into a room and I was, you know, I was an important guy. People wanted to know what I had to say and, you know, um, and, and the longer I was in that dark military industrial complex, the, 
the more you see the humanity of everything, the more you see the destruction that you're a part of. So I, I was a part of this dark machine. I was a part of this evil thing. I mean, it does, it does good sometimes. I don't want to demonize the Western military industrial complex, but it does a lot of bad. <laughs> so I, I'm not afraid to say that now. I'm not afraid to say that I was a part of it. Um, and so I had to come to terms with watching the grinding up of the enemy, quote unquote enemy who are just humans, the grinding up of myself and my wife, my friends and my brothers and sisters in arms and watching all these people that kind of got ground up by the system. And so coming home, it was really about moving past that. I went to the VA, asked for help. They partnered me with a VA therapist and she was into Eastern medicine and uh, mindfulness meditation. She gave me the power of now by Eckhart Tolle, uh, stuff like that. I read it. It didn't mean much to me back then. I've read it since and it makes tons of sense now, but I, that started the healing process. Um, and it took me seven years to kind of move to a point where I was able to get beyond that trauma, get beyond, I call, I call Afghanistan the swamp of sadness. And that's kind of where I was stuck when I came home is that swamp of sadness. The never, I don't know if you've never seen the never ending story, but, um, they make fun of it on uh, Stranger Things, the song. But uh, anyway, I was stuck in that swamp of sadness, and I will, you know, I didn't give up. So I'm happy with. I'm really happy. I'm a positive person. So even when I was going through all this stuff, I was still kind of positive, even though I was completely broken. Even in war, I was positive. I'm, I'm a pretty kind person. I think that helps sustain me because I never completely lost myself. I. Um, so I appreciate that about myself. And so that's, that's kind of what I went through when I came home. It was a, it was just this healing, this healing journey that I was on. And was your wife going through a similar sort of healing journey at the same time? Or was she kind of in a different mindset when you returned to the States? No, we were both pretty broken. Uh, yeah, we were, <laughs> we were both pretty busted up. So she was, going through her, her, through the journey in her own way. And I, you know, it was like, it was hard. I mean, there's a lot of, when you have all those, those things wrong with you. And I, I'm also, I have Gulf War syndrome physically. I have, and she, she had, there's, she, her shoulders messed up uh, from the army. And so it's not just mental stuff. There's all this physical stuff that you're also dealing with. And so, yeah. And, and you feel like it felt like we were never going to be okay. Like, that's what it felt like. And so th the good thing is, is that we were there for each other. We understood each other, what was going on. But yeah, she's going through that. She was going through that process the whole time as well. And so coming out of that, you know, this swamp of sadness, getting to a point of healing, what kind of what changed then for you maybe mentally when you were kind of able to more reconcile with things and be in a better place, even though you continue to stay positive and kind yeah. and all of that? I got to a point where so much was bothering me. One day I said to myself, this is kind of before I had a spiritual moment that would happen a couple, a couple years later, but I said to myself, you know what? I don't really care anymore. Not that I didn't want to live or not that I didn't, you know, want to exist or anything. It's just that I'm, I would, I became less attached to outcomes or 
me like, you know what? It's not worth worrying about. What am I going to do about it? So I think that was a really liberating thing that really allowed me time and space to then say, oh, I, now I have a better understanding of myself. I have another, a better understanding of the world and the universe around me. I think that really helped lead me to a, a much more spiritual, intentional spiritual path eventually. And so what was that spiritual moment like a little while later that really kind of changed things and connecting it also back to the spiritual upbringing that you had? Sure. I have a little over two years now um, ago. I had a moment. I was laying in bed with my wife. She was asleep. And I had this profound moment of understanding or clarity. People call it awakening. They call it a lot of different things. Uh, and I saw the oneness of the universe that we're all the same, we're connected. That I also had a this idea that I knew that we're we're all saying the same thing, even if we're saying it different ways. We should be able to have this belief or this practice or this philosophy, have it side by side and be able to coexist peacefully and um help one another out. And I knew that I wanted to give back to the world. I knew that. I wanted to, to go start a community where people could kind of have these conversations and share their journeys. And so this moment, it was just like very warm. It was very complete. Uh, changed my life. So what was kind of that changing of life like for you? Like that next day, you know, were you kind of immediately sharing with your wife? Like, hey, I had this moment and I want to go down this path. Yeah, I told her the next morning and I said, you know, I, I, I want to start a nonprofit spiritual community and I want to learn more about all of this because like I wasn't on an intentional spiritual path. So I couldn't talk about it necessarily in terms of a normal spiritualist because I wasn't. I couldn't even told you about the mind and ego and what that meant in terms of spirituality, probably. So I had I had to go read a lot. I read like 60 books in four months and uh, I just totally dove in. and. And I told myself, I thought about, you, you know, that at night, sometimes when you think about, I'm going to make a change tomorrow and then you wake up and you don't make the change, you know, I told myself, you're going to do this. Like you're going to keep doing this. You're not going to stop. And so I did not just that I was learning about spirituality so I could better communicate with people and better know myself. I did something every day to kind of make this spiritual nonprofit happen and, and, and to try to make that idea of reality. So I, I kept with it every single day. And so what was the process like to create a spiritual nonprofit? Yeah, that was a lot. I mean, there's uh, obviously the legal paperwork and uh, spent a couple of days driving around North Texas trying to find a bank that would open in a bank account, you know, <laughs> just, <laughs> you know, uh, just small stuff, you know, like that. But from a larger sense, it was like, what's this going to look like? Uh, what's who's going to show up? What, who will this appeal to? How did, what's it going to, you know, mechanically, technically, what side are you, you know, how, where are you going to host it? Uh, you know, so I had to work through all these technical challenges. I had to work through all of these administrative challenges. I had to work through all of these content and creative challenges. It was this huge thing. Like it's this massive thing to, uh, try to put together. 
and I knew I, I knew that I wanted to have like a YouTube channel that accompanied it because I wanted something that was just like completely free and out there, open to the public and could help people whoever needed it. So I wanted that to be part of it too. So, you know, finding all that took months of work and notes and, you know, finally found a host, hosted on Mighty Networks. And so it could kind of be a, a walled off community that didn't have trolls and ads. And it was just for people that, that were wanted a, a calm and peaceful, safe place to be themselves and come one, come all, come as you are, regardless of your an atheist or a Muslim or a Christian or a Hindu or a Taoist, doesn't matter. And so what is the spiritual community like and how, how do you, you know, bridge the differences in different beliefs? As far as bridging beliefs, all we, all we really ask for anybody is, is first of all, each individual we pass going to be very unique and personal. And after that, all we're looking for is people that are open-minded and are open to others being empowered within themselves and walking their own path. And that, and if we can accept that from one another, then we can all um, make that bridge. And so I think it's, it's the mindset and approach and perspective that people come forward with. And also, we're very interested in that intersection between, yeah, spirituality, but we're not going to go live in a monastery in the foothills of the Himalayas, you know? So if, if we're going to be in this real world, what does that intersection look like at the intersection of your spiritual path and this day-to-day reality that we all walk through? So I think that is where our community has some focus. We're also focused on the metaphysical, spiritual side of things, but it's also that there's a practical aspect of living your life so that we can have a joyous existence and we can have time and space to be more spiritual. And, you know, meditation affirmations, we have journaling prompts, uh, we have Zoom conversations, weekly Zoom calls, like roundtable where people can just talk uh, lightly moderated. And we have conversation prompts every day where people, you know, we bring a subject out and say, let's, let's talk about it, you know, and people can watch and lurk or they can participate, you know, it's whatever they want. So that's kind of the, the idea of the flow of it. So what kind of audience does your spiritual community interest in, you know, bringing together beyond just, you know, having that open mind for other people? I think it's anybody that wants to live a more aligned life between their mind, body, and soul. It's, it could be a driven professional. It could be a stay-at-home parent. You know, I, I, I appreciate that everyone's going to approach it from their own unique perspective. And so my goal as someone that's a guide, I'm just there to help you help yourself to find that homelessness side. So I was a driven professional, uh, you know, so I can relate to that. At least I can communicate with that. I'm also a stay at home. I work from home now. I, I, you know, very much a homebody. So I can relate to that aspect of people as well. And so I think it's about people living the the life that they want to live. We're very much interested in how people understand and know what their higher purpose is, their Dharma. Like, do you know what your purpose in life is? Because I think it's unique to each of us. And if you don't know, can you find out? And once you find out, how is that purpose aligned with your daily life? How's it aligned with your job and your vocation? Are you living your values? Are you living your beliefs? You know, 
are you living who you want to be versus who society wants you to be? Asking those questions, because I, if we have self-love, if we have self-care, suddenly everyone around us is going to be better off because we're lifting up ourselves. We're lifting up the world around us, right? So that's kind of the idea that we, we bring forth for people. And then are you predominantly an online community that you're connecting in an online space, or are you also able to be in person connecting in the real world? We have, uh, we're mainly online right now, and we are in the process of creating like physical spiritual retreats where people can have a human connection. And I think eventually uh, we would like to have a place where people can come physically as, as needed uh, as well. So it's, that's kind of a work in progress. And the, the spiritual retreat aspect of it is something that's kind of like a medium term goal of ours. We've already done one as a test to see if it would work. It did. <laughs> so, um, you know, that, that is a goal is, is to bridge that gap between meaningful, authentic human connection online in the digital world, but also have it in the real world. as well. And from a, maybe like a technical standpoint, um, cause I, I think a lot of people even sh struggle still today to have those meaningful connections online virtually. How do you find strength in those connections online? That's a great question. I, th I think you have to be a little, uh, vulnerable. You have to open yourself up. I think that I talk about being open to the universe. You know, you have to open yourself up a little bit. And you have to be open to giving a little bit. You have to definitely be open to receiving what the universe is sending your way. And I think with that mindset, you don't even have to participate. You can just see what other people are talking about. And then eventually maybe you're comfortable enough and have enough confidence to then reach out and, and find your voice, find what you want to say, what you want to ask. Cause I, like I'm, I, I call myself a guide. I'm, I'm as much a student as I am a teacher. Um, cause I'm still finding my own way. I don't think that the ultimate answer exists. I think the why matters. So that's the, that's kind of what I would tell people is you have to kind of be open a little bit and you have to, you have to kind of want to move with the, the change of the universe Change is the kind of, I don't believe in absolutes, but I think change is that only universal absolute that does exist. It's always emotion. It's always changing. So what can we do to kind of embrace that rhythm of the universe? Definitely. And so you mentioned how you're a guide and you're also still learning. So do you have additional guides within the community to help others or is it kind of all cohesive? Like what's kind of the, I guess the makeup per se of the community? Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm probably the the face of the community, but my my wife's a co-founder. Another friend of ours that uh, we met uh, in Afghanistan, who was from the Balkans and, and knows war herself and knows strife. She's also a founder, and they're both guides as well. And I'm a certified professional. I went and got my certified professional coach through the ICF, and um, just to add bona fides and credibility. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's a joint process. And then I think there's also personal connections people make with one another. And I think that aspect is important because that's what community is about is finding people who resonate most with you and saying, oh, that person and, and myself, we resonate. So let's see what's there. 
And since the co-founders are all uh, previous service members, do you find that that is also a basis within your community or is there variety in that? There's variety there. We, we don't, we don't focus on veterans. We have some other people that have served as well that are in the community, but it's not necessarily something that we focus on at all. It's, it's kind of come, come as you are. We don't, we don't see, I, I don't see, we don't see any trauma being better or worse than other trauma. It's all different and it's all what our, it's all our own. Um, just like my experience in the military was much different than someone who was in an IED explosion and something like that, you know? So like, it's all very different experience. So I think that anyone, um, can benefit from kind of this openness and this, this process. Yes. And the openness and all of this, as, as you speak about all of your experiences is definitely coming through and, you know, the work that you've done spiritually and mentally and professionally seems to have landed you in such a good place. Do you continue to still have moments of PTSD or of trauma, even though you've kind of gone on this spiritual path? I love that question. No one ever asked that, by the way. Like, I've, I think I've been on 40 podcasts. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that question. Um, so I love that question. And the answer is absolutely unequivocally yes. I still have, um, I had my awakening moment. I, I saw my connection with the universe. I, it was a very enlightening experience. Uh, I saw the divine or myself or whatever you want to call it. People call it different things. Uh, the Brahmin or the Tao or Christ consciousness. But that doesn't mean that I don't still occupy this human body. I'm not, I am not completely separated from all those things in the past. I've tried to not have attachments to it. I've tried to forgive myself and others to try to not have judgment of myself and others let go of my past, but the past is still part of who I am. I still, there's still moments where I have hypervigilance. I don't feel safe, you know, here in my, my human existence. And um, it's something that I think is, is a part of me. I'm okay with it. I think acceptance, I think when, when people talk about letting go of the past and healing through traumas, I think acceptance is this big thing because then we know it's part of us and we're okay with it. And I think that helps us move beyond it. Even if it's still, you know, we've taken it from this big giant crate down to a carry on or down to a, you know, uh, this, this something that we keep in our pocket is still there. So if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it does. You know, the past is always going to be part of who you are and it can define you in different ways. Um, and it's, it's clearly, you know, brought you to where you are today. Um, that, you know, it, it's not something you can completely let go of, but I think talking about acceptance um, is definitely an, an important part of that process. Yeah, no, I, I think letting go acceptance that we spend a lot of time on that. I, I spend a lot of time that in the community perspective, but I, I do individual spiritual guidance and coaching as well. And I'd say a lot of that acceptance, letting go is a big part of, I think each person's journey to, to regardless of what your background is. I think there's, there's wisdom in that on, on most people's journey. And so when you talk about spiritual coaching and different people's journeys and all of the reading that you did, um, to, you know, learning and get to where you are, 
what is it like, you know, coaching people with different religious backgrounds or different spiritual beliefs? How are you kind of able to connect those different things in a way that you don't say like have a bias towards one religion or something else? I think being a universalist and an omnist is, is like who I am. It's kind of baked into my DNA now after I kind of had my moment. So I, I really respect all these different viewpoints. And so it, for me, it's easy because it's, I believe that, that my, my higher purpose or Dharma in life is to do that, is to, to, to meet people, to bridge gaps, to, uh, to have those conversations. And so for me, it just kind of flows naturally. It's a universal thing for me. Like I, I come by it naturally just from, uh, the moment that I had my understanding of the universe I had, and then being able to read and educate myself here and now to be able to have those conversations is just kind of a bonus. If that makes sense. Like that helps me have the vocabulary, have the, the context to be able to talk to, to people of from any any worldview any background um and i think that also goes back i've i've had that i was raised that way so that i think that goes back to when i was a kid and how my parents raised me so that that's something fundamental that i think goes even back to my childhood and, and how who my parents were as well Mm-hmm. Definitely, the parental influence uh, can be very strong, especially yeah. in that sort of religious sector. Yeah. Um, and so you mentioned the word omnist, which might be, you know, something that people aren't familiar with. Um, would you be willing to explain that a little bit? And maybe when you first started using that word to define yourself, and were you kind of ever changing your religious identity before your sort of spiritual awakening? I used to identify as as a Christian as a kid, you know, being raised Southern Baptist. I never really bought <laughs> bought into it a whole lot. I was I spent time in the hallway in Sunday school. Sometimes I got sent to the hallway, <laughs> so um, <laughs> I was a rebel. But I still identify as Christian. My dog tags when I went through basic training said Christian. Uh, I think during when I was at war after nine eleven, I, I lost I lost God. I lost the, the divine, the universal, whatever. I was. I was lost everything, but the mission. Um, and so I was, I was a religious then. Uh, but I, I, even in Afghanistan, I did read, I read Shogun by James Clavell and that, that book deeply moved me, uh, from a spiritual perspective before I was a spiritualist. And so I think that had an impact on me. And then, you know, my sister, she, she was a spiritual person. She spent time in India. She's, she raised llamas in North Dakota for nuns. And she worked at a goddess, a goddess camp with big game cats. And, um, so there's, there's a gene there, I think probably that I am tapped into. My wife is a a spiritual person. She had always respected, uh, pagan beliefs and kind of that aspect of things so that she brings that into the equation. Uh, but she's very universal as well. And so I think when I had my moment, part of my moment that I had this awakening or whatever, this understanding was universalism, omnism, and omnism is just essentially universalism. It's the same thing, having this view that everything's valid, 
whether it's this philosophy or this religion or this spiritual construct, science or atheism, it's whatever, it's, it's all believe what you want because it's probably right. <laughs> so great. Well, I appreciate you know you sharing that that part of your journey and um, as many people like to define things, um, right. and you know sharing sharing that you know definition as you know always learning and always learning new things. Now, before I start to wrap things up here at the end, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners? No, I always like to tell people slow things down. You have more time than you think that you do. There's a lot of hours in the day. You know, you've got choices there and don't chase perfection. We may have perfection inside of us, that universal divine thing inside, but perfection doesn't exist in the real world probably. So don't chase it. Uh, so those, those are the things that I would, I would say I would leave people with. Hey, I think that slowing down is definitely important and something that a lot of people, uh, can, and learn from. Um, now, at the end of all my episodes, I do ask a random question. It does kind of play off of what you did just say, um, but I'm still curious to hear it. What, in your opinion, is the best way to spend an hour? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know what? I'm going to say I do I do uh, bathing meditation with candles and a bath pillow in a hot bath. And uh, that is my favorite way to spend an hour, I think. So I'm going to say, go take a bath with candles and a bath pillow and you change your life. All right. That brings this episode to a close. So of course, if you would like to connect with John's nonprofit, I will be leaving uh, the website and the YouTube channel that he mentioned in the description. So feel free to go learn more and check both of those out. If you would like to connect with the podcast, our website is in the description as well. That brings you to all of our past episodes, which includes some other veterans and other great stories, other religious stories, along with many other topics. And of course, also brings you to our social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. So support of those pages is always appreciated. And if you would like to be a guest on the podcast, my email is in the description. That is always the best way to reach out and connect with me. And if you would like to support the podcast monetarily, there is a link to do that as well. So thank you so much, John, for spending time with me today. And to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.